0: Consider the Atlantic sturgeon. Scientific name, Acipenser oxyrinchus. It's one big fish. A prehistoric wonder. Its ancestors swam in the waters of Pangaea more than 200 million years ago. An asteroid killed the dinosaurs, but not the Atlantic sturgeon. They kept on swimming. Sturgeons are bottom feeders probing for small prey with barbells that look like mustaches. It's a bony fish, covered not in scales, but in rigid plates known as scutes. Imagine an ankylosaur, or a turtle for that matter. And they live a long time, if we let them. 50 to 60 years is normal, 100 is not unusual, which means Atlantic sturgeons grow to enormous sizes. 300 pounds is common, but they've been caught weighing up to 800 pounds. Occasionally, they propel their enormous bodies out of the water, catch mad air, and smack noisily back into the depths. Why did they do it? No one knows, but given the size of the fish, their ecstatic flights can be dangerous to unsuspecting rivergoers the Atlantic Sturgeon, a deadly surprise. But not as deadly to us as we are to the Sturgeons. Once upon a time, there were more Atlantic Sturgeons in Virginia's James River than anyone knew what to do with. During the bad winter of 1609, known as the Starving Time, the Jamestown colonists were forced to eat whatever they could, including snakes, rats, cats, dogs, their horses, and one another. But good news, come early spring, there were sturgeons. John Smith, yes, that John Smith, once wrote, We had more sturgeon than could be devoured by dog and man, of which the industrious, by drying and pounding, mingled with caviar, sorrel, and other wholesome herbs, would make bread and good meat. The Atlantic sturgeon, the fish that saved Virginia, and in time, Jamestown's first cash crop. The fish's popularity grew over the centuries. By the 1880s, fishermen in Richmond had industrialized collection, dragging nets upriver along the James, catching hundreds of fish at a time, then floating downriver to do it again. By 1900, the Atlantic sturgeons were mostly gone. They were harvested for many reasons. Their meat was used for food, their skin for clothing and bookbinding, their bladders for eyes and glass. Primarily though, it was the black gold in their bellies that doomed them. Caviar, good eating. When the Commonwealth of Virginia banned sturgeon fishing in 1974, the gesture was merely a formality there weren't enough fish left to be affected. In 1779, when Martin Hawkins of Richmond grabbed hold of an Atlantic sturgeon and accidentally rode it into the churning waters of the James, Richmonders recalled that the young men of the Pamunkey tribe had once done exactly the same thing. Except... They did it on purpose, a rite of manhood, a trial by fish. It's unknown whether Martin Hawkins knew of their tradition. Probably he did not. But he was hungry, and he'd gone down to the James River to catch some fish. The river was high, and its waters were bursting with Atlantic sturgeon that had come upstream to spawn. More than a hundred years later, in 1889, the New York Times would write, Our hero was at his post, watching for a catch, when along came an immense sturgeon and stopped to rub his sides against the rock, according to the habit of sturgeons. A habit from prehistory. When the fish did not object, he moved his hands toward the gills, then took hold, one hand on each side of the head. He'd intended to pull the sturgeon out of the water, but the fish lurched forward in surprise. He fell astride the fish's back, but his hands were held as in a vice, said the Times. For a moment, all was surprise and interest. Then both fish and rider sank in the deep, roaring waters of the flood. Observers cried in alarm to see a man lost to the river Leviathan. But soon, both Hawkins and the fish emerged downriver. Hawkins managed to take a breath before the fish pulled him under again. This pattern of breach, breath, and dive was repeated several times until the pair passed Mayo's Bridge, nearly half a mile from their starting point. The fish was tiring. Hawkins steered its head like a wheel of a ship, guiding it to a sandbar on the south bank of the James. There, he dragged it ashore. The fish was monstrous, over 10 feet in length and weighing 300 pounds. The distinguished adventurer was ever afterward known as Martin Hawkins, the sturgeon rider. Remembered because he reached into the James River and grabbed hold of the mighty Atlantic sturgeon, of something bigger than himself, a living fossil, a fish immemorial. A swimmer in the river of time.
1: From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vander Today's episode, Such is the Way to the Stars.
2: Where to today? Could it be the rolling sands of Daytona Beach, Florida, the Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina, or the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia? Today, guided tour is going to take you to a beautiful and historic city that has played an outstanding part in the history of our country. Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Old South. Five U.S. highways run through Richmond. Including U.S. Number One, the principal north-south thoroughfare, and U.S. Number Sixty, the main east-west
3: highway. Uh, from uh, from Richmond, Virginia, the famous, the the dangerous, the unbelievable Dirt Woman. So let's have a hand for Dirt Woman. Come on out here, Dirt Woman. Well, Dirt Woman, welcome to the Bunny Hawkins Show. Thank you. I might say you look ravishing tonight. Oh, I do. So, I look so old. <laughs> well, I tell you, ever since I've been in the Tri-City area, I've heard over and over again, Dirt Woman, Dirt Woman. Everybody knows who Dirt Woman is. Oh,
2: yes. Uh,
3: Everybody in this town, you hear all sorts of rumors. Oh, yeah. Right. First thing I want to know, first thing, is how did you come to be known as Dirt Woman?
1: So the story is that in World War II, they built, to keep Richmond from getting bombed by the Germans, they built a whole other fake city
4: out near the airport, out in San Oh, oh, I have heard this story. Oh. I have heard this story. Okay. Okay, well, I remember a long, long time ago when I was like a teenager, I first got a car and everything. I think I was... Uh, I was uh, barely driving age, so mm-hmm. whatever age that is. And we were, we were out near Bird Airport, and we were just cruising around, just drinking, slinging beers, and, and we came across this, it was like a ghost town. It was like uh, nothing but like concrete sidewalks and fire hydrants, but no buildings erase all the buildings, yeah, and just keep all the sidewalks. Just erase everything you see, and keep the sidewalks, and the yeah. fire hydrants, and shit like that, and that's the way it
2: was. Yeah. Richmond is a major manufacturing center producing products valued annually at more than a billion dollars. First of importance is the manufacture of tobacco, More than 110 billion cigarettes are made a year in Richmond factories, including those in this section, which is known as Tobacco Row. Richmond, where the best of the old is combined with the best of the new, making it one of the most interesting and charming cities in America today.
0: Richmond has produced its share of famous sons, daughters, and gender-fluid offspring. The late journalist, novelist, and sartorialist Tom Wolfe came from Richmond. Just think of all the people not fortunate enough to be born in Richmond, Virginia, he wrote. Other Richmond legends include the tap dancer and actor Bill Bojangles Robinson, who started his career dancing in the beer gardens of Jackson Ward. There's the singer Michael Eugene Archer, better known as The Angelo. And, of course, there's the singular Donnie Dirtwoman Corker.
4: Chris, order me a pizza, please. Well, yeah, Chris is after 3 o'clock, Chris. I'm hungry. Chris, where's my pizza? Chris, please, I'm hungry. Where is it? You ain't got it to me yet. It's 7.30-something. Bye. Pizza, 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 pizza. Why are you ignoring me, Chris?
0: The tennis icon and health activist Arthur Ashe was born in Richmond, where racial segregation meant he was not allowed to compete against white athletes or use indoor courts. To achieve greatness, he later said, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can.
3: Have you ever been in a movie or anything like that?
4: Oh
2: no. Oh no. Yeah. When I went to see Divine's play in New York City, she stopped the play and told everybody I was gonna be the next divine in this country when she died.
3: Right. Well now now she is gone, isn't she? Yeah, I know Mikeo play. You yeah. are? Yeah. <laughs> well I I, I I know everybody's anxious to see that yeah. happen. Uh I'm you're able to
4: prepare
2: see what I was. <laughs> but, uh, I had a good life. Yeah.
5: The Nation of Islam thinks you know races should be separate. You know, black and white. I was raised in New York. Um, met my husband, who was a member of the Nation of Islam, and became a member. The Nation of Islam has a very bad rap because of all the sound bites and you know when they talk about white people or Jewish people and stuff like that, but in the meetings um, on Sunday and on Wednesday, the focus really is on self-improvement. It's on independence from government and to do for yourself. Eat better, take better physical care of yourself. And I like that. But then that didn't work out. It's not progress, hell <laughs> no. Then I moved down here. How, um,
1: get out of the cities and the towns. How did you end up leaving the nation of
5: Islam? Well, when I left my husband, um, it was a domestic issue, and I felt that I didn't have help from the sisters or the brothers in the mosque. So I was like, going to do this on my own, and, you know, I'm going to leave religion alone.
1: Why, why didn't you find a, a different mosque? Why, why did you decide to walk away from the whole thing?
5: Good question. Actually, you know... I did that because when I came down here, the race relations was totally different than New York. I... The North, they claim that they like black people and they care about black people, but it is so segregated, it's not funny. I felt more welcome in the South. And then comes 2008, I have three children now. I'm working, I'm trying to raise my children and I feel tax everywhere. I have to pay so much tax and I feel the government presence in my life so much I thought that was too much and I joined the Tea Party. On Facebook I started meeting you know my friends who was in the Tea Party, they were mostly you know they had Confederate ancestors. Then I met this lady and she started flagging and I said well I should go out there and flag with her, because one, I support you know Confederate history, and two, it's a great way to show my freedom of speech. It's my right to be able to be out there in public with the battle flag.
6: I'm Goad Gatsby. I live in Richmond, Virginia, conveniently located next to all the Confederate statues used to be i live two blocks away from the virginia fine arts museum where a group called the virginia flaggers come out once or twice a week with confederate flags outside of the building and the winter of 2014 the album yeezus was out it was real hot kanye west was sporting confederate imagery on his clothing line he had a song out called new slaves i was like i'm gonna roll by and i'm gonna play that album I was on a bicycle with a little speaker on there. They took a picture of me. One person commented that I looked like a coach or hot dog, which is something I was just like, why are you gonna play, why, why you gonna play me like this? Why you play me like Looks like, oh, this is gonna be my thing now, pl- play playing it? rap music. Sorry, Kanye, wh- what happened to you?
7: It just
1: so, to, so to you, the flag represented? Rebellion against government tyranny.
5: Resistance to tyranny. Yes, exactly. And don't get me wrong. Yes, there are Southerners that probably fly it to intimidate. But I I think that is a small amount of them who are truly racist. But I most most people are good.
6: The day I stopped trusting them, stopped wanting to talk to them, was when a gentleman came up, expressed that he didn't like my music, called it fuck music. It was like, I find your music offensive. It's like, well, I find that flag offensive, so I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. So he kicked the amp, drove off on his motorcycle. He's got more Confederate officers in his family than anybody I've met. Oh, I forgot all about that one. Yes, one way they reacted to me was to disprove all of my points of me being anti-Confederate by showing that I had Confederate heritage. And they found 12 different relatives. And they're trying to discredit my opinion by saying, well, you can't be against the concept of Confederacy if you have family that was in the Confederacy. And I disagree with that entirely. I feel like I got adopted by hip hop. I feel like all these other things are more a part of me than the Confederacy ever was. Heritage is something that you're just told because you haven't lived it. It's someone else's experience. Hip hop is my heritage. I know what that means because hip hop isn't a person. Hip hop is an idea.
1: When did the the, the the cracks start forming with the flaggers?
5: Well, it was unfortunately it was during the Trump election and, and it was a Facebook post. Um, one of the founding members of the Flaggers didn't like, you know, that I was supposedly bashing Trump, you know, and he said something very, very nasty. And um What did he say? I I don't really want to get into that, um, but he said something really nasty. In um,
1: was it was it like ra- racial or?
5: No, I don't think he meant it that way. Somebody could have taken it that way, but I don't think he meant it that way. Um, but needless to say, it was not nice, and I had to distance myself from them then because I couldn't go around to events with him there. But it's not like, I don't consider myself a coward for not doing what I used to love. I changed, you and know, my, my views dreams change. Dreams I don't want to carry a flag anymore. I, I don't want to represent any nationalistic view. I'm all about individuals. It's all about individuals.
1: Just to kind of give people a sense of where, where we are, would you mind... Would you mind describing where where we are? Where are we sitting right here?
5: We're sitting here in Hollywood Cemetery, um, right in front of the beautiful James River. You know, so it's a very beautiful cemetery. Richmond, I love the history of the South. um, And it would be a shame to lose all of that. It really would.
0: Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery takes its name from the holly trees on its grounds. It was dedicated in 1849, long before the Dream Factory in California. The cemetery is 130 acres of rolling wooded hills, overlooking a stunning view of Belle Isle and the Rocky James River. Interred in Hollywood, you can find two genuine American presidents, James Monroe and John Tyler, plus one fake president, Jefferson Davis, naturally. William Mayo, the first architect of Richmond, is there, as are numerous Confederate generals, among them George Pickett and Jeb Stewart. The Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Virginius Dabney is there, as is Civil War historian Douglas Southall Freeman. And so, too, in Hollywood Cemetery lies musician Dave Brockie, better known as Guar Frontman, Odorous Arungus, Scumdog of the Universe.
8: Hello, America! How are you doing out there? You look fantastic. Why is that? I'm just, I'm perfect. I'm an immortal god from outer space, (laughs) and I also use oil of Olay.
3: Really? Well, you know, I was going to ask you that question. My mom, I told my mom you're on, and she was wondering if you were a
4: space beast or an
0: alien. Among the many monuments, one memorial stands out to Richmonders in the know. The mausoleum of William Wortham Poole and his wife, Alice. It's set into a grave-spotted hillside with the relief of slanting stone columns. Poole was a mason and therefore into that sort of thing. A stone lamb sits atop the facade. Carved below it is a child, and below that, a rectangle of blank space. Once, it displayed an inscription from Isaiah 11.6, And a little child shall lead them. That inscription fell from the tomb and has never been replaced. Without it, the lamb seems almost idolatrous— and maybe it's this image that does it. Or the site's rejection of the Bible verse. Or simply the barbed W's and Poole's carved name. Whatever the reason, legend states that this tomb is home to the Hollywood vampire. So where did the Hollywood vampire come from then? In one version of the legend, it comes from the collapse of the Churchill Tunnel on the city's east side when the freakish ghoul was seen emerging from the eastern mouth of the tunnel. A mob chased it across daytime Richmond until it sought refuge in the pool tomb. There it sleeps, leaving each sundown to feed. The collapse of the Church Hill Tunnel did in fact involve a horrible spectacle. But the Hollywood vampire story doesn't get the details right. As the name implies, the tunnel ran underneath Church Churchill neighborhood, home to St. John's Church, where Patrick Henry famously declared, I know not what course others may take, That's but as for, for me, me, give me liberty, give or, me give me liberty or give me death. On a rainy day in the fall of 1929, workers with the C&O Railway were deep in the tunnel when the western end gave way. It fell onto a work train and its ten flat cars. Up above, in the Church Hill neighborhood, the western portion of Jefferson Park collapsed. Train engineer Tom Mason and fireman Benjamin F. Mosby were in the cab of the work locomotive. The falling earth burst the engine's steam boiler, scalding the men horribly. Mason, pinned in place, died quickly. Mosby managed to tumble out of the cab, get under the flat cars, and make his way east. He emerged from the eastern mouth of the tunnel, covered in blood, his skin hanging off of him in sheaths. The cold rain was still falling. Some of you boys, please call my wife and tell her I am not badly hurt, he said. Then, for some reason, he began to climb Church Hill. Most of the working men made it out, but as the foreman later recalled, hell began to rain in the tunnel. Men passed me screaming and fighting. Some of them yelled they had knives and would cut anybody that got in their way. Others were praying. You never heard such praying. The confusion lasted for a long time, it seemed. There were no lights. No one thought to light a match. Men ran back and forth bewildered. They lost direction in the darkness and did not know where to run. Some of them ran toward where the dirt was falling until, warned by the noise, They then quickly headed the other way. Other men butted their heads into sidewalls, fell over the ties and rails, and knocked each other down in a desperate effort to escape death. And to make matters worse, a wave of compressed air from the falling tunnel blew a dozen men off their feet. A couple weeks later, the Church Hill Tunnel was sealed and abandoned by the CNO. Later generations of Spelunkers have found it flooded with groundwater. To this day, the earth continues to settle, and portions of the tunnel collapse. When they do, the ground shifts in Church Hill. Here is where reality meets legend. The ghoul described emerging from the Churchill Tunnel after its collapse was the fireman Benjamin F. Mosby, face broken, body scalded, skin sliding off of him. But no one chased him across the city. They retrieved him from his strange climb up Churchill and took him to the hospital, where he died hours later. He was buried in Hollywood Cemetery, so he's there too. Like so many things about Richmond, the legend of the Hollywood vampire begins with real human suffering. But we all love a good story. They're much more fun. Patrick Henry, speaking at St. John's Church, said, It is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts.
9: I'm a storyteller because I can't do art. I don't have the patience for it, but I like to describe things.
6: Where do you tell stories?
9: Uh, I tell stories right now in North Carolina and in Tennessee, and I'm wanting to get over here to do some storytelling. And I and then I do a lot of Appalachian Jack Tales and stuff like that.
10: What What is an Appalachian Jack Tale?
9: All right. Well, f- great. You should ask. You know, Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. That's Jack. Mm. That's Jack. I've got a lot of stories that different ages of Jack up until the time that he was the grandfather and ready to die. And that's Jack and the bag of death. You know, so.
10: Can you tell me
1: shortly, I know you're in a hurry, um, the story of Jack and
4: the bag of death?
9: So Jack, he woke up and he looked up and he saw that sack in that tree and he remembered how that sack got there. Jack was at home one evening, and he was an old, old man, and it was a cold night. He heard a knock at the door, and he answered the door, and there he saw him. There was death right there at that door. Now, Jack was Southern, so he showed him some hospitality, and he asked him in, and he went over to the cupboard, and he got down some of that fine moonshine and poured him each a drink. Death said, "Jack, you ready to go?" Jack said, "No, sir, I'm not." Death said, "Well, how about I bet you for it?" Jack said, "All right." So they pulled out the cards and they started playing some poker. Well, Jack knew he's fixing to lose, so the death so Death said, uh, "All right, Jack, you ready to go?" He said, "No." Jack said, "Death, I bet you can't get in this sack." Death said, I bet I can. Jack said, well, wickety-whack, get into my sack. And in that sack, Death jumped. Jack tied that sack up, throwed it over his shoulder, and off he walked. He walked high, and he walked low, and he walked up to the very top of the tallest mountain. And he went to the top of the tallest tree, and he took that sack, and he tossed it up there in the tree. And when Jack climbed down, well, he was tired, so he went to sleep. Jack woke up and he saw that sack there. Well, Jack started walking back down the mountain, back towards his home, and we got to the town. He saw an old woman, and she was all bent over. She was slumped so far over that her toes was about to touch the ground. Jack said, hey, old lady. He said, hey there, son. Jack said, how you doing today? She said, I ain't faring too well. She said, I'm old and I'm tired, and I'm ready to go home. Jack said, well, won't you go on home? She said, son, you know that's not what I mean. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go to heaven. Jack said, well, why ain't you been able to die? She said, I'm 147 years old. She said, don't you know, some fool done took death and put him in a bag and took him up there and throwed him in a tree and can't nobody die. Well, Jack, he thought he'd done himself a real good thing. She said, well, son, ain't nobody died around here for quite some time. Why, there's been wars, been fought and won. Soldiers, they got hurt, got real bad hurt. They ain't been able to die. They just lay there and suffer. There's people with disease, and they just lay there and suffer, and they can't die. Can't nobody die. Well, Jack started to question whether or not he'd done a good thing. So he got down on his knees, and He prayed. And just then the angel of the Lord touched Jack's shoulder. Jack said, I don't know whether I've done a good thing or a bad thing. O- old people got to meet their great, great, great grandchildren, but so many people suffering and can't die. That angel said, son, I believe you know what you need to do. That angel said, Jack, you see my harp? You see how the, the strings on my harp got rusted shut, because I ain't been able to play anybody into heaven. Why there's folks up in there in heaven and they got tables spread with all good things to eat for their kinfolk waiting for them to come home, but ain't nobody been able to come back home. Jack, I believe you know what you should do. Jack said, yes, sir, I believe I do. So Jack got up and he walked far and he walked long and he walked to the very top of the tallest mountain and he clung to the top of that tree and he got that sack down and he put it on the ground Jack said, hey, Death, you ready to come down? Come on out of that sack. That Death said, Jack, you ready to go home? Jack said, yes, sir, I believe I did. Jack opened up that sack. Death jumped out. And as soon as he did, Jack went right up to heaven and met, he met his mom and his daddy and his, his brothers, Will and Tom. And he met all them giants he slew. And he met all them people. And Jackie is the first one went home that day, and there was a lot of souls enter heaven that day, and they were all real happy to finally be at home. And that's the story of Jack in the Bag of death.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> what you don't know is that uh...
0: <sighs> My father's name is Jack.
4: I died on Friday.
0: about a mile south of the Fall Line of the James, where the river descends from Piedmont Plateau to the Atlantic Coastal Plain, was a large stone house. It was here, in 1674, that William Byrd II was born to a wealthy family whose fortune was built on tobacco farming and slave trading. After studying in Britain, Byrd came back to Virginia Colony to take over his father's business and married a woman named Lucy Park. Their relationship was... Tempestuous January 31st, 1711
8: My wife quarreled with me about not sending for Mrs. Dunn when it rained She threatened to kill herself but had more discretion It rained again all the morning I ate some roast shote for dinner My wife came into good humor again and we
0: resolved to live for the future in love and peace Bird's diary contains a plain spokenness about his marital discord as well as a great many other topics November the 5th 1718, I rose about seven o'clock
8: and read two chapters in Hebrew and some Greek in Lucian. I said my prayers and had milk for breakfast. The weather was cold and cloudy, the wind southeast. About ten came my Milner, and I rogered her.
0: He was constantly
8: horny. July 21st, 1718, I went to the park where I met Mr. Cooper, and then picked up two women and carried them to supper, and ate some scotch collops, and then went with one of them to the barnio and lay with her all night, and rogered her three times to her great satisfaction. May 13th, I went to my kind Mrs Smith, where I met a fine young woman, with whom I ate some rabbit fricasse, and then we went to bed together, and I rogered her three times, and neglected my prayers. January the 29th, from thence I went to Mrs C, but she was out, so I went to Betty S, and drank some wine with her, and then went to the barnio and lay all night, and rogered her four times." I supped with Betty G., and then we went to bed, and I rogered her two times, very powerfully.
0: He was a man who gave in to temptation freely and frequently, and not only to friends' wives and prostitutes.
8: November 30th, 1719. I rose about eight o'clock, and I made the maid feel my roger. I said my prayers and had boiled milk for breakfast. December 4th, after I was in bed, the maid of the house came into my chamber, and I felt her and committed uncleanness, but did not roger her. October 6th, I went to the capital where I sent for the wench to clean my room, and when I came, I kissed her
0: and felt her, for which God forgive me. Throughout his diary, Bird is aware of the spiritual peril inherent in his misbehavior. Although his fear of the Almighty never stops him from acting on those desires, but he shows no spiritual concern in passages describing his treatments of the enslaved servants. December the 1st, 1709.
8: Eugene was whipped again for pissing in bed and Jenny for concealing it. December the 3rd, Eugene pissed the bed again, for which I made him drink a pint of piss. February 27th. In the evening, my wife and little Jenny had a great quarrel, in which my wife got the worst. But at last, by the help of the family, Jenny was overcome and soundly whipped. At night, I ate some bread and cheese. I said my prayers, but had good health, good thoughts and good humour. Thank God Almighty.
0: Many Richmond institutions are named for the author of these passages, including Byrd Park and the ornate Byrd Theater. That's because Byrd's legacy includes more than just a licentious diary. He is also the founder of Richmond. It was from his holdings along the fall lines that Richmond took shape, and it was Byrd who gave the city its name. Byrd climbed a hill east of the falls at the site of today's Libby Hill Park. He found the sprawling view of the James River reminded him of a similar landscape he'd admired as a young man studying in London's Richmond-upon-Thames. And so, Richmond it was. Thus, we did not build castles only, he wrote, but also cities in the air.
2: William Bird Park, named for the city's founder, has three lakes for boating, fishing and a refuge for ducks and swans. I'm back in the hospital again. Call me Chris, please. Or to Chris, I'm
4: sick again, Chris. Call me, please. Call me please. Call me Chris, please. I'm <laughs> so there but there was breakdown, Chris. Call me please. Chris, call me, Chris. I'm in the hospital, Chris. Call me, please. Call me, Chris. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're in the you're in the twilight zone, buddy yeah hey
1: did I tell you we had a possum wander into our house the other night? Oh no shit
4: no' it was shit. like in
1: the living room we were just oh no no how did you get running? <laughs>
4: oh, he oh, he got scared. he just well I'm scared a, at each other. I'm a possum killing machine, really? yeah oh, oh yeah oh, you don't know that about me No, no. Let me show you something. All right. Let me show you something, all right, hold that thought. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, there we go, there we go. There's a possum killing machine right here. We're just all drunked up in the back of my house and, and somebody says, what's that back there? I said, what? And he says, is that a possum? You know, he's, he's just as drunk as I am. Is that a possum? I said, I don't know what the fuck it is. And, and it's a possum with a shitload of babies all attached to her. And it was out in the mid... It was out in daylight, too. Okay. Anyway, so I grabbed this um, And I hate to say it. I, I just annihilated her. And, and I was presenting it to my wife and... And everybody that was sitting at the picnic table in the backyard, and, I, and it's dripping blood and and little baby baby possums on the ground. Oh Jesus! And, and I'm just, hey, yeah, yeah, how you like it? How you like it? You know. Anyway, so I'm doing that stupid shit, and uh, Alan Lamb down here, he says, I oh, well, I slung it out in the alley after I thought it was completely dead." Yeah. And all the little baby possums came back to him. Alan came over to me and. You gotta finish the job. I said, what do you mean? And he said, look at all the baby possums. So I said, well, okay. So I just started squashing possums, little oh, baby no. possums. Yeah, and, and everybody in the whole neighborhood hated me. <laughs> everybody in the whole neighborhood hated me for like, I don't know, it went. On for a long time. <laughs> Alan got a big kick out of it. Uh, it, it uh, I'm, I'm glad he had a good time. What, for it.
1: what possums ever do to you?
4: Uh, well, <laughs> they came in my house too. Oh, really? Yeah, they come in my house before too. And I don't like possums. I, I'd rather have a, a, a mouse than a possum. Yeah. I, I like killing possums. You got any possums? Just just the one that wandered into our house. Uh, I didn't I, get it. it. Alright, uh, you, you did get it or you no, did? No, no, I ran away. You, oh, 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 okay, yeah.
1: alright. I was, yeah, I was so shocked because it's so light, like all, all the lights were on and everything. Deer? No, I'm still working on this one, I'm good, thank you.
4: Whiskey? I got, I'm still working on that too, double-fisted. Alright, well, uh, you know, um, possums are very prevalent around here. Very problem. And so are groundhogs. Fucking, fucking uh, sewer rats. <laughs> yeah, you, we get all that good stuff. All that good stuff.
0: Violence has been a part of Richmond since its beginnings. It's just a matter of fact. As the city grew, it did so on the backs of multiple crops, goods, and industries, none of which were more profitable than the trade in enslaved humans. In the 1600s and 1700s, Richmond was the unloading point for enslaved Africans being moved into the mid-Atlantic states. And in 1808, when the federal government outlawed the transatlantic slave trade, Richmond got even busier. More than half of the nation's black population lived in Virginia, both free and enslaved, but the majority enslaved. With African markets no longer available, the flow of human bodies reversed, and Richmond became the departure point for the trip downriver to the rest of the Atlantic world. In almost six decades, nearly 500,000 people were sold southward through Richmond. Families were destroyed. Human beings were hunted and manacled and beaten and displayed naked in a marketplace just blocks from the Virginia state capitol, the one designed by Thomas Jefferson, who once wrote, The most sacred of the duties of a government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. But black people were not citizens. The slave trade built Richmond, Virginia, and violence was inherent to that trade. In the decades leading up to the Civil War, violence was booming. Among Richmond's more despairing spots during the slave trade boom was
11: Chaco Bottom. That area was horrible. It had a creek that ran through there called Chaco Creek. This is the place where they would dump bodies of human beings. The creek would flood, the bodies that were quickly interred there would float around in the city. There were carcasses of animals that had been butchered. These places where people would be sold, there were auction blocks, there were dungeons. It was the absolute worst. And that's where they sent Gabriel. Gabriel lived on a plantation called Brookfield Plantation. At that time, though, there were a lot of plantations that had been over-farmed. When the ground becomes deplete of the resources necessary in order to grow, they came up with something that they kind of call surplus, enslaved people. These black folks would be sent to the city. They'd be hired out. All the money that they would earn within those trades in the city would have to be sent back. And that was one of the situations that happened with Gabriel around the age of 14. He was meant to learn to become a blacksmith. The person he was apprenticing under was French-Canadian. Gabriel was exposed to the Haitian Revolution through him. The news of this was coming back and forth through this guy's visitors to his apprentice shop. And he really ran with a lot of people who believed in black freedom. This man was a liberator of sorts. And he planted seeds in Gabriel's mind that then took off like wildfire. While Gabriel was working in the Shackle Bottom area as a blacksmith, there was a young woman by the name of Nan, or Nanny, beautiful Nanny. She was a laundress, and he decided that this is the woman that he wants to connect with. This is a woman that has this passion for freedom like him. And he began to trust her. And really, that's all it really took at that time. is like, can I trust you? Do you want freedom? Their goal was for her to be bought out of enslavement by Gabriel. Any children that they were to conceive because the wife was free, then the children would be free. So they were like, all right, boom, here's the way we're going to do this. I'll marry you. I'll take all the money that I've made on my days off from hiring myself out. And by the time I get the money together, we'll get married like the same week. So he was stacking, 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 stacking. I mean, it took a minute, but he got his dough together. And he was planning on buying this woman out and marrying her like the same week. So they plan the wedding. And there was this general understanding back on the plantation that if you found a livestock that was kind of roaming and it was your wedding, you could appropriate it for yourself and have a barbecue and everything would be fine. They had this pig that they had um, wrestled to the ground to travel with them to where they were going to barbecue it on the same day of the wedding. So there's this overseer that came from England who didn't really know the inner workings of enslavement culture and the concessions that were made by the gentry and ruling class out there. So this guy from England is like, wait a minute, where are you going? Whose pig is that? Is that my pig? And they were like, no, he was just roaming. And that's how we do it. Like, this is our wedding day. This is what we're going to do. We're roast him and just chill. And the guy was like, I'm not going anywhere, and neither are you. A scuffle ensues. A real scuffle. The fight lasted, I don't even know, definitely long enough for Gabriel to have bitten the man's ear clean off. So here's this guy bleeding and screaming in the road, white guy from England, who is just, like, probably making, like, the biggest deal about the fact that this black savage has just bit his ear off. Gabriel was then brought up on charges, Then they threw him in jail. But the worst part of all this, they took all of the money that he had worked for. He's unable to marry Nan. No, you're not marrying her. Hell no, you're not marrying her. They tell Gabriel that you are now required to pay back restitution and you'll be enslaved for the rest of your life. So I think that was like the pivotal moment for Gabriel to just be like, there is no reasoning with these people They have no concern for our well-being, and the only way that they're going to respond to our push for freedom is for us to take it. So the plan was that while the militia was out of the city on other business, they would start from the plantation uh, on Brook Road, come about three miles into where the governor's mansion is situated in the center of the city of Richmond, Virginia, along the banks of the James River. They had made friends with this old black man who had the keys to the armory, which was inside the governor's mansion. He would unlock all the ammunition and all of the weapons, cannonballs and guns and everything, and then take the governor hostage. Their plan was to negotiate the freedom of all black people enslaved in the state, or else they would threaten to kill the governor. Their vision was to create an insular community right in central Virginia. And the reason being is that they felt like they cultivated it for generations. They wanted to create a respected community that would be like a monarchy, actually. Gabriel was planning to be the king. Their motto was death or liberty. It was the reflexive of give me liberty or give me death. We know we're going to die, and if we don't, then we'll be free. At that point, they expected to die. That night, it rained like nothing anyone had ever seen before. The bridge that you needed to go across to downtown Richmond washed out so no one was able to get into the city. People started getting nervous. They didn't want to be implicated in what they saw was a thwarted and failed insurrection. That's when the snitching started. Some people told the night of, by the time the word came out that this was going to happen, the militia turned around. They came back, guarded the city, started rounding people up. And within two weeks, they had already hung 25 people. Gabriel disappears. He dips off. Now we're talking about mass manhunts with the federal government after them and militias from the state and patrols and mass hangings and blood is just running in the creeks and streams. People are being brutally, savagely beaten. And it was on. Eventually, he made it to the Tidewater area and hid in the bottom of a ship and was getting ready to Go wherever. We don't even know if probably somewhere up north like uh, Philadelphia, that was a place that people have always gone. That was a free space for black folks. However, someone pretty much snitched on him and said, I think we see Gabriel in the bottom of this ship. They captured him and decided to put him on trial, which was a farce because, as we know, the outcome was already sealed. But Gabriel was like, I'm not saying anything. He already knew it was going to happen. He had his mouth shut the whole time. The only thing he asked for is, please just let me be hung at the same time as my brethren. I want us to be able to go into the afterlife together. Very few of his requests were honored, not even that one. It was almost as though the state was trying to do anything they can to undermine any of his celebrity. And they wanted to make sure that they would bring him down as low as possible. Then he was hung on the city gallows on the 10th of October. What must have been going through his mind at this time is like, y'all got to keep on without me. You might have to start again next week, next month, next year, next decade, next century, next lifetime. But let's just keep moving forward, forward ever, backward never.
3: Chris, I got cancer, buddy. I just want to call you and tell you,
4: you found five pilots in me. Please call me back, please. Bye. Call me back, Chris. Chris, call me. You don't. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a whole bomb of sleeping pills, Chris. Bye. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Chris. Happy New Year. I hope you have many more, more, more. I'm drunk, Chris. Call me, buddy. Happy New Year, Chris. Chris? I'm gonna miss you, Chris. Where'd I go? I'm gonna miss you, Chris. Bye bye.
0: On the morning of April 2nd, 1865, Union soldiers broke through Confederate lines surrounding Petersburg. Richmond would be next. Robert E. Lee sent word to Confederate President Jefferson Davis and thus began Evacuation Sunday. Once Davis and his government were gone and his throngs of citizens fled south across Mayo's Bridge, the remainder of Richmond went wild. First, the city council made a particularly unwise choice. They decided to destroy the city's liquor supply to prevent Richmonders from locating it, getting drunk and rioting. Emissaries were dispatched throughout the city to round up and demolish liquor stores. These agents of destruction smashed bottles on cobblestones and axed barrels in the street. The work attracted attention, a lot of attention. Soon, the people of Richmond realized what was going on. And what was going on was free liquor. Dozens of men, women, and children dropped to their knees to scoop up the drink from the gutters. They used their hats and their hands, and they got drunk. They turned their attention to Richmond's business district, and guess what? They rioted. They got what they could get. Confederate courier Moses Handy decided to leave quarters and observe the crowd. He was forced into a haberdashery that was being torn apart. Thieves shoved hats into his hands. One of them looked him in the eye. It's every man for himself, the thief said. And the devil for us all tonight. And he was right. There was more to come. Confederate General Richard Stoddard Ewell positioned men around the city and ordered they set fire to the tobacco warehouses. The idea here was to deny the Union capturing the tobacco. He also ordered his men to burn the city's two railroad bridges. The idea here was to deny the Union the ability to cross the James. Once these locations were alight, the men also set fire to Mayo's Bridge, the last remaining bridge. The weather had been calm that day, but as Mayo's began to burn, a wind rose from the south. The flames spread from the burning bridges and warehouses, to neighboring warehouses, to storefronts along the James, to storefronts the next street over and onward, to the saloons, to the arsenals which, of course. In the end, almost 1,000 buildings were destroyed, nearly one-third of the city, over 20 city blocks between Main Street and the river. Observers from Church Hill on the morning of April 3rd saw the rising sun turn red with the smoke of the conflagration. When the Union Army arrived at the Capitol building, the city looked like a giant crater of fire, as one soldier said. They raised the United States flag, then went down into the streets, found the city's one remaining fire commander, and set about containing the Inferno. It was the Union that saved Richmond from burning entirely to the ground. Richmond, Virginia, the city that destroyed itself, even before it caught fire, Richmond journalist Edward Pollard watched the city burn from Capitol Square. He expressed his feelings this way, and thus on this thronged theater, unnaturally illuminated and in an auditorium of the most unearthly sounds, expired much of the pride, the luxury, the licentiousness, and the cruelty of Richmond. For Thomas Chester, a black reporter who entered Richmond on April 3rd with the Union Army, he saw fate at work. He wrote, It was retributive justice upon the aiders and the betters of treason to see their property fired by the rebel chiefs and plundered by the people whom they meant to forever enslave.
6: Grandmama, would you sing a song with me? Mm.
7: Would,
6: would you sing a song with me?
3: Yeah, a, a spiritual song.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, yeah, come
6: Cool. On. Uh, do you have a song that you sang a lot growing up or that you like to sing?
5: Yeah, I liked to sing when I was going to church.
3: Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't sing that much now. Because mm-hmm. uh, I get there now. If I get you singing too much tears started
7: running.
3: Go ahead on Pinch.
7: Amazing sing grace. Yeah. How sweet
4: you can sing the
7: sound that, that saved. saved.
0: Classic film, My Dinner with Andre. Richmond pretends to be New York City. A few years later, Richmond would play itself in the 1985 TV movie, Finnegan Begin Again. Robert Preston plays Michael Finnegan, a newspaper man nearing retirement, who lives in a decaying house in post-Whitefly Church Hill. His older wife struggles with dementia. Finnegan rides the bus to work every day along Richmond's Broad Street, where there's always an Aikido lesson taking place in a storefront window. He speaks to everyone he sees, especially women. You're just lovely today. Which is how he meets Liz, played by Mary Tyler Moore.
2: Hello, you sweet thing. My you look lovely today.
7: <sighs>
0: Liz is a dancer and art instructor having an affair with a married undertaker, Paul. She's unhappy.
2: You've been crying, you want to talk about? It?
0: Liz and Finnegan first become friends after he's mugged by a teenage Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, God, your wallet. Give it to me, okay? Give it to me, all right? And Richmond is everywhere. Liz and Paul eat ice cream at Bamboo Cafe, which is still there today, but by no means an ice cream parlor. Liz and Finnegan take whiskey shots at Helen's, which is still there today, and in fact, a great place to take shots. The real fun of the piece, aside from winning performances by its leads, is watching a socially diverse and pre-gentrified 1980s Richmond reel along behind the actors. There are porno theaters on Broad Street, even. The good old days. Shabby, run-down, problematic, and charming. Over the course of the film, Liz and Finnegan grow closer. He even lives in her apartment when his wife ends up in the hospital. But their friendship bothers Liz's married lover, Paul.
2: Oh, Paul, don't get excited. He's just a friend. What's he
9: doing in your robe? His clothes were drenched. He would have caught pneumonia.
0: It all culminates in one terrific scene in Hollywood Cemetery. Just a few paces from the Richmond Vampire and W.W. W. Pool. From Odorus Arungus and Jefferson Davis. The scene takes place just after Finnegan's wife dies. Liz, Paul, and Finnegan drive into the cemetery towards the open, empty grave of Finnegan's wife.
2: I just want to see the spot. It won't be beautiful. The AstroTurf isn't even out yet. I don't give a good damn about your AstroTurf. Michael? I'm fine, I'm fine. I just want to see the grave. He
7: just wants to see the grave.
2: And we are going to show it to him.
0: Finnegan and Paul walk downhill to the open grave, with a pile of dirt beside it, covered by a green tarp.
2: not very deep. Standard depth.
0: Finnegan is standing at the very edge. Paul takes his arm. Careful now. The camera pans down to reveal water and mud in the bottom of the grave. All right. Finnegan turns to leave. Paul stops him.
2: This is probably unprofessional, but uh, I need to talk about something.
3: Don't you think it's about time you moved out of Liz's place? I honestly don't think you've got my best interests at heart. In a few days, I'll be moving in there. I'd appreciate
0: your being gone. Finnegan begins to walk away. If I've mistaken your motives, friend, I apologize. Finnegan turns. He pushes Paul into the grave. Ah! Ah! Finnegan starts away. Liz is out of the car, running downhill in high heels. Liz can decide if she should help uh, Paul or chase after Finnegan. Oh, Paul! Uh, Michael! She chases Finnegan. Michael! You pushed him! He's learning empathy for the customer. What's going on? i think twice about that man, Elizabeth. Liz! He's got four- Finnegan Begin Again ends on an uplifting note, with Michael Finnegan embracing late life renewal. In reality, Robert Preston died two years after production of lung cancer. But the film Finnegan Begin Again lived on, and lives on still, or does if you can get your hands on a VHS copy. They're out there.
2: That's the way it is. Something ends, and we begin again, and again, and again. It's about the only thing we can be sure of.
0: It's unlikely Michael Finnegan had the Atlantic sturgeon in mind when he said that. And yet, it is true of them too. The sturgeon are back. They're back in the James River. They've been swimming around these parts since before they were parts, and they're swimming again. In 2004, juvenile sturgeons were captured in the James. It was a sight not seen in these waters for more than 100 years. And then, sturgeons began to be struck and killed by commercial vehicles. A macabre sign, but a sign nonetheless. The Atlantic sturgeon was back. A few years later, nearly 200 adult sturgeons had been found in the James, and a few years after that, another population appeared in the nearby Pamunkey River, named for the indigenous people whose youth once rode the backs of the giant fish. Five more juveniles were discovered in the James just this October. Little tiny things, but with the potential of long lives ahead. The Atlantic sturgeon. They're in there now, in the James River. And they'll outlast us, the swimmers in the River of Time. They're moving upstream. Such is the way to the stars.
4: This is Dirt Woman. Kiss me, baby.
6: Richmond.
2: Richmond. 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 Rich 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 hey, where do you hang out, Dirt Woman? On 900 Block of Great Street. drug dealers and too many popheads
1: that's it for Love and Radio this episode featured Vixie Jill Glenn
9: well wickety whack get into my sack
1: free
6: egg and femi
11: their motto was death or liberty Karen Cooper
9: I should go out there and flag
5: with hug.
6: Goad Gatsby I was on a tricycle with a little speaker on there Arlie
1: Guilford and Wesley Chavis would you sing a song with me?
5: Yeah, a, a
4: spiritual song. Cliff, I'm a possum killing machine and dirt woman.
2: All back in '76, I got arrested for prostitution on the corner, and I poo-poo all over the back seat of the car. Oh, ever, ever since. So you ever since you kind of dirtied up. up
3: the back seat of a police car?
2: Yes, sir. I sure did.
3: And that's how you did. Was it the police that gave you that name?
2: Yeah. First,
1: you know old the episode was produced by Stephen Jackson, Rich Grissett, Kim Phil Domhofsky, Kim and Julia DeWitt. There. Andrew Blossom wrote the narration, which was read by Chioki Ianson. You can find a bibliography on our website. And that's a thing I never thought I would say on this podcast. Simon Renshaw provided the voice of William Byrd II. The Amazing Grace song you heard is an excerpt of the longer piece called Transition Home, produced by Wesley Chavis. Jack and the Bag of Death was recorded by John Fryer. Special thanks also to Chris Dovey, Leah Lamb, Jason Tongan, Brett Raper, Cynthia Lotes, Eleanor McDowell, and Jerry Williams, whose Dirt Woman documentary, Spider Mites of Jesus, is out soon. Almost all the music you heard on this episode is from Richmond artists, including Chino Amobi, Agnar Kia, LeBradford, Pan American, and more. Visit our website for a full track list. Love & Radio is a production of Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all your love and support, your phone calls, your emails, your tweets, the angry ones, the critical ones, the complimentary ones, over the course of this whole season. I really appreciate it. We will be back at you with brand new episodes in April.
10: We are at sub oh. <laughs> Nice. right? nice perfect timing. Uh, so we are at Sabrosa Bakery. I'm one of the owners. My name's Evrem Do, and uh, after we get a drink of um, coffee, we're going to go over to the mixer and we're going to mix three batches of croissant dough. Flour, sugar, salt, and we'll also put a little bit more yeast. Now just pouring the milk, mix it together, let it rest, mix it again, and then got our dough. Pretty pretty simple.
1: Can you, can you tell me the story of how sabrosa started and, and like where the name's from?
10: Yeah, uh, there's a website called Dictionary.com that sends you like words of the day, and a long time ago, they, they sent me the the word sabrosa. Well, I say words, words, but you know one phrase. And uh, subrosa means, you know, done in secret or in confidentiality, on the down low, in the parlance of our times.
1: It literally translates to under the rose. Under the
10: rose, yeah, because it came from the senatorial chambers in Rome where they would actually paint roses in certain rooms. And the rose was an old old symbol of of secrecy and and silence. So, you know, the, the god of silence in Greek mythology has a rose for a mouth. And then also, I, we were selling the bread originally, only selling it by subscription and only by word of mouth, and you had to get on an email list. So it really was something that was kind of done under the cover of darkness. This is a secret bread club. But then I liked the when we opened our doors publicly, when we started to you know actually look at the, having a cafe. We thought, well, we still want it to be like a, that feeling of. This is something shared among people who know what's up, you know, who know um, where to get the good stuff. Check one, check two. You want to check out the cafe? Yeah. Should we check it out? Okay. Come on, this. watch your step. All right. Gonna keep, uh, yeah. Keep coming this way. All right. Get <laughs> dark. Yeah. So we are actually in uh, the Churchill Tunnel, uh, in the East East End entrance here. Okay. Uh, keep, keep coming this way. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a tunnel that was a, an old train tunnel that actually collapsed in 1925. It was built during the Reconstruction era. Okay. Uh, there were um, a few people trapped inside um, there's stories that there are more that we don't know about but uh, I'm not the a historian there um, and yeah uh, so here we are and this, this is the cafe you know portion um, oh wow yeah so can you describe what we're looking because the, the, I was surprised you can
1: see the train
10: yeah the, the, of course yeah we left the train It's obviously you can't see the whole thing it's um, buried but uh, we left the train just as it is um, we were going for something that is, you know, real uh, that touches you. Well, you can't, you don't want to touch it. You can actually cut yourself. You, we put the table right there, right, because the train is still there. This is beyond just historic preservation. Okay, this is this is fresh. This is new. Um, I mean, of course, we're kind of deep down underground, but like it's it, the idea is fresh.
1: And it's still, I mean, it's still quite dusty, too.
10: We we well, we wanted it to stay this way. And we're really happy. We're happy with it. Do you get as many customers down Because that's it's a bit hard to find. Yeah. You know, the profit and loss is a little different down here. We, we got a really busy in, a, in our first location um, to the point where uh, I would say that it was a little difficult to keep up with some of the demands um, that our customers had, and so we we got to the point where um, we thought, you know, I sat down with my sister, I said, listen, what if we had a kind of, you know, it's like where we come from in Turkey, you know, you really can't, sometimes you have to go through an alleyway and really find your way to a place. What if we had a place where people really, there's no sign, it doesn't even say Subrosa, you know, there's just a, a tunnel, and then you have to keep going through, and maybe you're going to get a little wet, maybe you're going to get a little dirty, but at the end of it, think about how good that's going to taste to sit down in that kind of atmosphere. I mean, it's cool down here, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
10: I mean, it's not like any cafe. Yeah. And so the idea is you're going to have to, you know, work a little harder, and then that croissant is going to taste that much better. And uh, t- tell me about the, these, like, skeletons here. Um... Those are just the skeletons that were here. Uh, so those are just found. Oh. I, I believe somebody sprayed some you know, resin or whatever to help them stay there and not, you know. Um, Do you get any complaints from people who, you know, have- it's the same thing as it's the first shop. Everybody comes in, oh, this is too dark. You know, everybody has something that they don't like. Okay, and water, it's going to be one thing. There's going to be the dust. We've had only a couple things collapse a little bit more because of the extra commotion in here. I don't appreciate like people saying this is a dangerous place to eat. It's obviously not. You know, we've had no, well, very few um, incidents. And so, yeah, I think you're just always gonna do that. When you do what you wanna do as a business owner, you make those decisions, you have to believe in it. You just go for it, right? And this is a beautiful place. So how, like, how do you get the croissants down here? One of the things that we did retrofit into the here, over here is that um, we retrofitted this, this shaft kind of like a dumb waiter, if you will. Um, you, you hear that? So now that means that something's coming down. Um, oh, right now. Okay. And it looks like we've got uh, look, a chocolate croissant, plain croissant. Two lattes, perfect. Um, you want to walk it over with me? Sure. Okay. <laughs>